Now, before I start the sermon, I have like I have two questions for you before I start the sermon. First of all, we've been talking about self-control. And I just want you to consider this question. How essential is self-control? I mean, how important is self-control really? Is it essential to your character? Is it essential to the life that you live? Is it essential to the, to the way that you live that life and the future that you plan and, and the way that you handle the stresses that you encounter? So how essential is self-control. And the second question I want you to consider is this. How delicious are marshmallows? I want you to think about that and watch this little video. Oh, didn't you just feel for those kids? I love the ones that took their marshmallow and, you know, they just kind of they just kind of picked at it, you know. And maybe they won't notice if I just take a little bit off the top and turn it over and I'm not going to eat this. It's been in my pocket all day, by the way. I'm not, not going to be eating that one anytime soon. Caleb wants it. He can have it a little later. But uh, I, you can just see it on their faces. They wanted to eat those marshmallows so bad. And, and they were the ones that would pick just a little bit. Maybe no one's going to notice. And then there were the others. No pretending. They just shoved them right in. Go ahead and eat it now. Well, that, that test is called the marshmallow test. And the marshmallow test has been around for a long time. In fact, uh, many years ago, there was a university that gave a group of preschool students, preschoolers, that marshmallow test, and then they kind of followed their lives for 30 years. For 30 years, they followed these children's lives, and they watched the choices that they made. They watched the jobs that they worked at. They, They watched their relationships, the the education choices that they made, how they spent their money or how they saved their money and how they related to their families. And after following them for 30 years, what they found was that the children who did well at the marshmallow test, they did well in life. Consistently, they had more success by every measure. They, through their self-control, they developed the ability to handle life's stresses well. Self-control is setting aside what you want now so you can fall in love with something better. And what the marshmallow test showed us is self-control makes a huge difference in the way that life turns out. And its absence proves to be a major problem. So when we read in the Bible, when we read that self-control is part of the fruit of the Spirit, when we read Scripture after Scripture where God calls us to to self-control, we should not read that as though God was some cosmic killjoy who didn't want us to have any fun, who doesn't want us to live our own lives the way we want to live them. We should read that and understand that God wants the very best for us. That's what we see, in fact, in the text we look at today in Second Tim, excuse me, Second Peter, Second Peter, chapter one, verses three through eight. If you want to follow along in those blue Bibles, it's page one thousand eighteen, Second Peter, chapter one, beginning in verse three. And this is at the very beginning of Second Peter, at the very beginning of the letter. And very often we we gloss over, we just kind of gloss over the introductions. You know, we'll read. Paul's introduction, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, you know, and, and we'll read Peter's introduction and other introductions. We don't think much about them, but I want you to hear the way Peter introduces this letter, how he begins. Verse 1, he says, Simeon Peter. Did you notice that? He's, he calls himself Simeon Peter. He uses his Hebrew name. He's trying to relate to his audience 
And, and, uh, and so he uses his Hebrew name. He says, Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I love that. A faith of equal standing with ours. Well, Peter's, Peter's an apostle. Doesn't that make him special? He says, no, your faith is just as good as mine. We all start from the same place, and, and we all need to hear that, 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 that our faith is of equal standing. Then he goes on in verse 2, and he says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. As we come to know Jesus better, the grace we experience in our lives, the grace we know increases. And with that increase of grace comes an increase of peace. That is a wonderful promise. Faith of equal standing, even with an apostle. And grace and peace that grow as we come to know Jesus better. So we pick up there in verse 3 with Peter's words. He writes, His divine power, that is God's divine power, has granted to us all things pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in this world because of sinful desire. So for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. Your faith. Remember, we all start out with the same faith. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. And virtue with knowledge. And knowledge with self-control. And self-control with steadfastness. And steadfastness with godliness. And godliness with brotherly affection. And brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> you know, I, I don't know how many times I had to watch the marshmallow test this week, but as I watched that marshmallow test, you know what I wish? I wish I could be there in the room with those kids. I wish I could be just standing there next to them and saying, come on, you can do this. You don't have to give in. You can hold out. You can, you can hold out for two marshmallows. It's, it's just a little while. You can do this. I, I wish someone could be there encouraging them. I think too often we fail at self-control because we feel like we're alone. And what Peter is trying to show us here is we're never alone. God is with us in the trials that we go through. And he tells us here that God has given us his power. God has given us his power. He's given us everything we need to succeed. You know, he begins with that promise that that our faith is just as effective as his. Peter says, it's not about who I am. It's not about what I've seen. It's not about how closely I've walked with Jesus. It's not just that I'm one of the twelve so that I'm, I'm more important than anyone else. He says, it's not the things that I sat at Jesus' feet and heard Him teaching. It's not that I witnessed His miracles. It's not even that I walked on water with Him. He says it, 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 we all have equal standing in faith. It is all a gift from God. It is a gift from His power. He says there in verse 3, His divine power has granted to us all things pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us 
to His own glory, to His own excellence, His divine power. I want you to think about that for just a moment. His divine power. God's divine power. The same power that spoke the universe into existence. The same power that unleashed those plagues on Egypt. The same power that set Israel free from from their captivity. His divine power. The same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. That same power is at work in you and me. If we ever come to grasp that, that that's the divine power, that is the power that gives us new life. If we ever come to grasp that, there is no telling what we'll be able to do in life. There is no telling what we'll be able to overcome. We will really, we will truly, we will truly thrive. And really what he's telling us, <laughs> what he's telling us is we have no room for excuses. And that's a shame because some of us have some really great excuses. But there's no room for excuses, he's telling us here. Sometimes we, we want to make excuses for, for why we lack self-control. Sometimes we, we blame lousy parents. You know, we got lousy parents, and that's why we, we lack self-control. Sometimes we blame the economy. Sometimes we, bring, we blame poverty. Sometimes we, we blame the, a lack of, of opportunities. But what Peter is saying is God has, given you, God has given you everything you need for real life, for real godliness, And so how dare you try to pass off your excuse as being more powerful than God, more powerful than His divine power. We do that though. We make our excuses sound really good. We have a lot of really great ones. We make our excuses sound more powerful than God. There were people in the Bible who had excuses also. There were people who had excuses, but they also had access to self-control. And yet they failed to use that. You think about Samson, right? story of Samson. Is there anyone stronger than Samson in the Bible? I mean, Samson is this amazing, amazing person. Samson is raised by godly parents who commit him to the Lord from childhood. And he, he takes a vow. Samson's vow included that he would not eat any grapes. Now that includes wine. That includes ferment, fermented grapes. So, so Samson would not have any wine. The second commitment in that vow was that he would touch nothing dead. Okay? So as, as his vow was made, he, was, he would not touch anything dead. And the third commitment is the vow is, is the one that everybody remembers. Samson was not going to cut his hair, right? So what does he do when you read the story of Samson? Well, first of all, he gets drunk. <laughs> Secondly, and this is the really disturbing part, I've never liked this part of the story, he's walking along the road, and what does he see on the side of the road? A carcass, a lion carcass, and inside the lion carcass is honey. So what does he do? He scoops his hand in and he takes the honey out and he gives it to his friends. But he doesn't tell them where it comes from. I I think that's the most brilliant thing that Samson did. Don't ever tell somebody that you did something like that. But he touches a lion carcass. And then the third thing, what does he do that finally costs him his, his strength? He has his hair cut. He had every chance in the world to follow God. And he didn't have the self control to avoid the things he should have avoided. We got the other story in, in the Bible, story of Daniel. Daniel's taken to Babylon. He is promised that he can eat the king's choice food. He can have the best food in the land, and he turns it down and keeps his commitment to God. Now, was Daniel a stronger person than Samson? I don't think so. But what Daniel had was a commitment to self-control. He chose to rely on God. God hasn't called you to do this by yourself. You notice in verse 3, it says that He called us He calls us 
to His own glory. He calls us to His own glory and excellence. He wants you to know Him. He wants you to know His power. He doesn't want you wallowing in sin. He wants you to overcome temptation. And He's given you everything you need to do that. God has given you His power. But that's not all. Peter goes on and he tells us that He's also given us His promise. He's given us His power. He's also given us His promise. And His promise is that you belong to Him. That's His promise to you, that you belong to Him. So His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness, to truly live and to truly live well. He's not called us to failure. He's not called us to our sin. He's called us to His glory. He's called us to His excellence. That's the life God wants for you. He's on your side. He wants you to to succeed. That's not just His wish for you. That's not just what God hopes for you. That is His promise to you. He says in verse 4, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. It's not just promises. He says they are His precious promises. They are His very great promises. I mean, that sounds pretty significant, doesn't it? They're precious and they are very great. God truly wants the best for you, and He's going to give you His very best. And He says these promises do two things for us. First of all, these promises enable us to to partake of His divine nature. Earlier in verse 3, He talked about His divine power. His divine power that creates everything. His divine power that holds the universe together. His divine power can hold you together also. But here it's not His divine power, but His divine nature, His very nature. I mean, that sounds huge. What does that promise do for us? He says that His divine nature, that we become partakers of His divine nature and that we can escape the corruption of this world caused by sinful desires. This world is corrupted. You get that, right? This world is corrupted. We all know that. We get that. This world is messed up. Is the world ever going to get better? No. It's never going to get better. In fact, if you flip over one page in my Bible to chapter 3, Peter talks about what's going to eventually happen to the corruption in this world. And in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, it says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the, he- and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. That's where corruption eventually leads. It never gets better. Corruption leads to destruction. But what's His promise? You get to partake of His divine nature. You get to escape that fate. You get to escape the corruption, and you get to escape the destruction. In my house, we have a lot of what we call, uh, we call it redneck Tupperware. Do you have redneck Tupperware in your house? It usually says something on the top like country crock, right? Or it, or it says cool whip, right? And it goes in the fridge. And is there country crock in there? No. There's, you know, last week's uh, chili might be in there, or the leftover meatloaf goes in there. 
and you put the lid back on and you shove it to the back of the fridge. You got, you got, you got redneck Tupperware in your house? Come on, show me your hands. There you go. You got redneck Tupperware. Here's what you don't have in your house. You don't have Connor in your house. And Connor has figured out that just because it says country crock, it may not be full of fake butter, okay? There might be ribs. There were ribs in it the other day. Uh, there might be that it's got the meatloaf in there. It's got chili in it. And so Connor will find that in the middle of the night. He gets up and he finds it and he takes it out of the fridge. And then a few days later, we find it. We smell it. And sometimes it's behind the sofa. Sometimes it's tucked away in his room. Now, here's the beauty of it being redneck Tupperware and not real Tupperware. When we find it and it's been left out for a while, do you think we open it? No, we don't open it. We throw the whole thing away. Why? Because what's, be, what's on the inside has become corrupted to the point that we don't need to open it. We don't need to look at it. We don't, we don't need to see it. We may not even know what it used to be at that point. So we just throw the whole thing away because we're going to eat more country crock and we're going to have more redneck Tupperware eventually. Chapter 2, God, or chapter 1, Peter promises us that God wants us to escape that corruption. God does not want you to rot with the rest of the world. Chapter 3, he tells us that one day, God's not even going to open the container. He's just going to throw the whole thing away. The whole container and everything is going in the trash. But he says, you and I, as partakers of his divine nature, since God is incorruptible, you and I get to partake in his divine nature. He has invited us to partake in His nature, His eternal nature, His holy nature. We get to share in that. Now you and I, as self-controlled as we might be, we know that we can't be incorruptible on our own. We can't avoid corruption on our own. So He's not just given us His power. And He's not just given us His promise. But He's also given us His presence. We are never left alone to do this on our own. You know, as difficult as, as the fruit of the Spirit can be, and some of the fruit of the Spirit, some of it is, is very challenging. One of the things that we've been reminded over and over again over the past nine or ten months is it is the fruit of the Spirit. It's not the fruit of you. It's not the fruit of me. It is the fruit of the Spirit. It's not the fruit of your own power, your own strength. It's not even the fruit of your own self-control. You don't get these without the presence of God in you. And the same is true of Peter's list here. Look at what he does in verses 5-7. through seven. In verses 5-7, through seven, Peter gives us his own list of virtues. He doesn't call it the fruit of the Spirit. And look at how he arranges his. Because what Peter is doing is building something. He builds virtue upon virtue. He says there in verse 5, For this very reason... Make every effort to supplement your faith. Again, we all begin with the same faith. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. <clears throat> and virtue with knowledge. And knowledge with self-control. Self-control with steadfastness. Steadfastness with godliness. Godliness with brotherly affection. And brotherly affection with love. He says, make every 
efforts. But it's not by your effort. Peter is calling us to agree with what God's already promised us. He's calling us to, to, by our lifestyle to agree with who God has already said that we are. We are worth saving. We are worth forgiving. We are worth spending eternity with. And knowing that should change us. It should change our behavior. So today, we live to prove who we belong to. We live to prove who we are. That needs to be seen in our character. And in part, it needs to be seen in your self-control. But you notice there's a progression here. We begin with faith. Trusting God is for us. We end with love, where, where Paul actually began. We begin with faith, trusting that God is for us. And we end with love. What did John say about love? He says, God is love, right? So we begin with God and we end with God. In other words, it's about making room in your life for His presence. And that includes self-control. Self-control is setting aside what you want now so you can fall in love with something better. And that something better is Jesus. That something better is His presence in your life, strengthening you. His promise guiding you, pointing you ahead to a better life, pointing you ahead to a greater hope, and His power equipping you to live the life that He's called you to. And you notice there in verse 8, we have the goal. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, if you're continuing to build them, they will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful. Unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the goal. But you notice the goal also comes with a warning. Look at verse 9. <clears throat> For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he is cleansed from his former sins. So nearsighted that he is blind. I can relate to that. I am nearsighted. I can see things up close very, very clearly. I take these glasses off and you're just a blur. I might just leave them off looking at you. I don't know. Uh, I take the glasses off and you're all just a blur. I mean, I can't make anybody out. I can't see things that are, that are far away. And that, what Peter's saying is that can happen to us spiritually too. We can get so focused on the things that's right in front of us. The stuff that's enticing us right now. The stuff that we want right now. The hunger that we have. That crave that we have right now that we lose sight of the goal we lose sight of the end of the line and we lose sight that there's something better for us out there that there's some one better for us out there and instead of moving forward we just find ourselves in a vicious cycle where we fail again and again and we make the same mistakes over and over again and some of you know that vicious cycle all too well and you know that that vicious cycle comes with with guilt from messing up over and over again, from giving in to temptations, from giving in to, to addictions, and you found yourself back to the same sins and struggling with the same sins again and again, the same struggles, the same, uh, the same lack of growth. There's no growth, there's no depth, and just frustration, and there's just guilt and pain and corruption. And ultimately, you know what the end is. The, the end is destruction. And so you wonder, what's What's wrong with me? Why am I doing the same thing over and over again? And I would ask, whose strength are you doing it by? 
Are you doing it by your own strength? If you're relying on your own strength, you're, you're going to fail. But if you're relying on God's power, on His promise, and on His presence, you will succeed. God calls you to self-control because He wants the very best for you. The very best isn't just a, <clears throat> a disciplined life. The very best is not just holding out for, for two marshmallows. It's not just about holding out for the best job, <clears throat> the best education, the best opportunities. The, the very best that God wants for you is Himself. He wants Himself for you. He wants Himself in your life. He wants His Son in your heart. And He wants you to know the promise that He will never leave you. And He wants you to, to hold on to Him as tightly as He holds on to you. Let's stand together. Father, we are very aware of what we don't have. We are very aware of our own weakness. But again and again, in, in Your Word, You remind us that You have equipped us with, with everything we need. Everything we need for life and godliness. To live for You, to serve You, to experience victory over this world and, and its corruption. So in those, in those moments when we feel our weaknesses so strongly, so deeply, and, and we lack the self-control we need, would you remind us of what you are building inside us? Remind us of the strength that we know from your presence and the hope that we have because of what you have promised to us. And Father, there are a lot of people around us who struggle and there are a lot of people around us that we care for and, and they don't know you. There are people we love who have not escaped the corruption of this world yet. And so we ask that you would give us hearts to share you with them that they might know you, that they might truly know the hope that they can have. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.